1: Hello and welcome to Chinese Whispers with me, Cindy Yu. Every episode I'll be talking to journalists, experts and long-time China watchers about the latest in Chinese politics, society and more. There'll be a smattering of history to catch you up on the background knowledge and some context as well. How do the Chinese see these issues? Now, Taiwan is not Ukraine. There are some really important reasons why the experiences of the two places aren't directly comparable. Yet, there are certain parallels in their situations that mean that any comparison of the two, even if to point out the differences, are still illuminating. And that's why many many around the world have clubbed the two together in how they see uh, the Russian invasion. And that includes the Taiwanese people themselves as well. Since the invasion began, there have been solidarity marches in support of the Ukrainian cause, as well as protests against the Russians at their Taipei embassy. What exactly are the lessons that the Taiwanese are drawing from the Ukrainian situation? And how does all of that fit in with Taiwan's politics in general, which is a thriving democracy and dominated by two camps? And their biggest political issue seems to be, rather than anything social or economic, China. So on this episode, I'll be speaking to two people who can shed light on Taiwanese politics and how it sees Ukraine. Brian Chill is the editor of the New Bloom magazine an online publication covering youth culture and politics in Taiwan and the Asia-Pacific, and Professor Kerry Brown, who is head of the Lao China Institute at King's College London, and whose book, The Trouble with Taiwan, was published only last year. So welcome both. Brian, let me start with you. Because like the rest of the world, the Taiwanese have presumably been glued to their screens when it comes to following the Russian invasion. Is that position that I described in the introduction of solidarity with the Ukrainians, and we've seen Ukrainian flags, for example, being lit up across skyscrapers and bridges in Taiwan. Is that the mainstream opinion of people?
2: It is the view that is holding out, I think, in a discourse, because I think particularly Taiwan sympathizes with Ukraine, seeing parallels in the invasion of a smaller country, a smaller democratic country, by a larger authoritarian neighbor. And so I think there's this kind of projection onto Ukraine, and people fear that this could potentially be the outcome for Taiwan. And so one has seen solidarity marches occurring on a near daily basis sometimes, drives to raise money for Ukraine to help with refugees. I think 740 million was raised in 18 days as of today. And uh, various shows of support, including lighting up uh, buildings with the colors of the Ukrainian flag. This goes from everything from nightclubs to Taipei 101 itself and etc.
1: And then there's a social media uh, slogan as well, 今日乌克兰,明日台湾. so Ukraine today, tomorrow Taiwan.
2: Yes, and that is quite interesting, because that slogan is originally taken from uh, Hong Kong, actually. Today Hong Kong, tomorrow Taiwan. And so this is adopted from that. It's not seen since the 2019 Hong Kong protests that one has seen a strong support of solidarity or a wide discussion of an issue that took place outside of Taiwan in the same way.
1: And I've also come across some other opinions as well. For example, in the West, a feeling that the West and America in particular have done relatively well in supporting Ukraine. But in Taiwan, there are some who say that, look, America hasn't deployed its troops to help Ukraine. Uh, in the Taiwan context, there's this is American policy of strategic ambiguity, where successive American governments haven't said if they will ever deploy troops to help Taiwan in a similar situation. And so this is actually, you know, showing Taiwan that America can't be relied on in this process, which is, um, I think, a different opinion to what people in London, for example, might think. And then there are also those who say, well, actually, maybe Ukraine's mistake was to sidle up too close to America and to NATO, and so Taiwan shouldn't go do similar things in order to avoid provoking China. Have you come across those opinions as well?
2: Yeah, so that view has come up, uh, particularly from members of the Pan Blue Camp. Uh, for example, former President Ma the last KMT president, uh, he said that, for example, the US is likely to only sell arms to Taiwan in the event of a Chinese invasion and would not get involved itself. And I think there's this concern then broader regarding the ability to rely on America. I think this was continuing patterns already seen under Trump uh, with flip-flops and so forth. Even Mm -hmm. Biden, he has said sometimes that, well, there's a commitment. There's no commitment that is quickly retracted by the US State Department whenever it is a flip-flop like that. But I think there's this concern then. And so potentially... Although Ukraine shows how a smaller country can fend off its larger neighbour that has territorial designs on it, it also shows that maybe you can only rely on it yourself. And so there's all this discussion there.
1: Yeah. And Kerry, let me bring you in here, because President Tsai Ing-wen set up a task force earlier this year, before the invasion, to study the lessons learned from Ukraine for Taiwan. What kind of conclusions do you think they will have been drawing?
0: I mean, I think although, although a lot of people have been saying that Russian attack on Ukraine is, you know, kind of giving China some information about what it might do with Taiwan, I don't think it would be a particularly positive thing. I mean, I think all that has happened in the last month of this awful and terrible invasion has been to show that any armed conflict is very problematic. It's very high risk. It's very um, unclear what, uh, you know, kind of objectives are going to be met by it. And this is a land war Uh, with Taiwan. We'd be talking about an amphibious landing, which is even more problematic. So I think amphibious landings not really been done since the Second World War. So I think that China would probably look at this and feel that there are many, many ways of showing that the only route is a political one for a a kind of dispute like this. And even um, that route is extremely difficult. Uh, It's hard to see a route to it at all at the moment. So, I presume that saying when her president, her task force, must have been fairly realistic in looking at this. But I presume if they were to meet today, they would probably be even more firm of the conclusion that there's not a huge amount of parallels between what we're seeing in Russia mm-hmm. and Ukraine and what would happen maybe between China and Taiwan.
1: Mm-hmm. And is that mainly because of the amphibious landing, or are there other active considerations, do you think, from the Taiwanese perspective?
0: Lots of reasons. First of all, you can't force onto an unwilling population a resolution. I mean, we see that the probably greatest problem that Putin's forces are meeting is that the levels of opposition amongst Ukrainians is very high. So even a military victory is not a victory, really, because it's hard to see how 44 million people are going to put up with this you know, kind of occupation. It's going to be uh, decades long if they do want to occupy and enforce a, you know, kind of puppet government. So that's pretty kind of startling. It shows the unity of the West. I think the greatest problem is that maybe Chinese and Russians made the fatal mistake of thinking that the West doesn't believe anything anymore because of anymore mm-hmm. because of the bizarre way we've been behaving in the last ten years. And I don't blame them. I mean, we do act like we don't give a damn about anything. But actually, the unity of the sanctions, the unity of NATO at the moment, at least, has been quite sobering. So I don't think China is going to be particularly thankful to Putin for having given one thing that is lacking in Western politics at the moment. And that's a unifier. I mean, the Americans for once seem to be actually unified. This is all thanks to Putin. So I imagine that Xi Jinping and his colleagues are thinking, "Okay, we've got to have another think about this. They should do. It's an incredibly sobering kind of response.
1: Mm. And Brian, just picking up on the first thing that Kerry said, which is about the Ukrainian fight back, there has been a feeling that Taiwanese people maybe wouldn't fight back so much. Maybe the young people are too spoiled or too comfortable, whatever it is. There was a poll done pre the invasion that said 40% were willing to defend Taiwan and 51% were not willing to defend Taiwan. But I think in the months since that the invasion has started, I mean, am I right in thinking that has changed people's minds? It has consolidated that feeling of self-defense? Because there's been a discussion and debate over conscription and over reforms to the reservist program as well, haven't there?
2: Yeah, it's an interesting conundrum because polling shows that young people do not want to serve in the military, but at the same time, then one sees these massive mobilizations in past years regarding election campaigning for the candidate that is not pro-China or the 2014 Sunfire Movement, which I myself was a participant in. And so that shows that there would be resistance in some form, but that young people don't want to join the military. I think a lot of this is perhaps due to fears of... Uh, being provocative or not wanting to fight China or et cetera, just in the sense that oftentimes the majority of support for the status quo as indicated by polling shows that Taiwanese are conflict averse and do not want to provoke China as declaring independence, for example, would do. And so I think I wonder if this is almost linked in that sense. But then I think particularly after Ukraine, there's discussion of strengthening the reserve program, uh, for example, just in terms of the training they receive or lengthening the period. And now we're seeing a shift towards discussing whether conscription should be lengthened from the current four months of uh, men born after 1994 to in one year or what other means that taiwan needs in order to make itself uh, more able to fight back a larger enemy from without including for example territorial defense forces civilian militias or resilience training among the population about how to respond to an invasion or disaster um, in terms of medical aid disaster relief and etc
1: and that sunflower movement you mentioned is a 2014 protest where students occupy Taiwan's legislature to protest the government's attempt to push through a trade pact with China. And that gives us a good segue to talk about more generally about Taiwanese politics. And Kerry, can you give a dummy's guide to the political system and the major political parties?
0: Yeah, sure. Just on that last survey, though, I mean, Cindy... They are hogwash, those surveys. They're total hogwash. I mean, (laughs) when people actually have things happen, I think you'll find that they do change their view. And I think before the Second World War and the Cambridge Union or Oxford Union, there was a sort of famous, you know, union debate about, would you fight for your country? And the same number said, no, they wouldn't. And of course, they all did. So I I wouldn't treat that with a great deal of seriousness. Uh, The political system, yeah. I mean, since 1996, Taiwan has been uh, a flourishing democracy. I, I mean, after decades of uh, martial law under Chiang Kai-shek and then his son, Chiang Xinguo, it became, you know, after a sort of transition period, uh, a successful democracy and, and is a ses- successful democracy. There's been, in 2000, and then in 2016, um, 17, transitions from one party to another uh, between the KMT and the Democratic Progressive Party. And at the moment, you, you know, Tsai Ing-wen has been kind of, you know, re-elected, I think when she was re elected a couple of years ago, and I was in Taiwan when that happened, people before the election thought that uh, she, uh, you know, kind of wasn't that popular. But because of China's behavior in Hong Kong, she managed to get a pretty big victory. I don't know how, I mean, these sorts of events, how they play in politics in Taiwan, I imagine are, although the parallels, as I said, aren't very close, I think it makes people realize that they have something very precious they want to protect and that. Being a democracy is part of your identity. And from what I understand of Ukrainian opinion, it's not particularly that they're great fans of their government, maybe. I mean, although Zelensky was voted on a high proportion, but they certainly feel that being a democracy was hard won. And I think that would be the same for uh, Taiwanese. It wasn't an easy process. Uh, It wasn't particularly bloody, thank God, but it wasn't easy. And it will not be something that they will ever want to give up. So whatever resolutions are proposed in the future, however China wants to pitch this, if it can't address that, it's a non-starter as far as I can see. It's a total non-starter.
1: Yeah, you mentioned Taiyuan that she is not of the Kuomintang, so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the Kuomintang, what they believe in, and the Democratic Pro- Progressive Party, which Taiyuan leads, and what they believe in, if we can, in a kind of brief
0: summary. <laughs> I mean, it's broadly it's the sort of roughly a right wing left wing kind of division, although about very different issues. I mean, the KMT is, as I think Brian said, uh, Ma Ying-jeo, the previous president, was regarded as fairly. Uh, friendly towards the mainland, and did you know a number of different uh, you know kind of agreements, the uh, Economic Cooperation Framework Agreement in two thousand and ten, which is like a kind of partial free trade agreement between China and uh, Taiwan. Same because the De- Democratic Progressive Party is usually regarded as more leaning towards independence, but not not stating it. I mean that's a sort of red line still in in Taiwanese politics. So they have been traditionally regarded as more of the opposition party. And usually when they're in power, the mainland gets more nervous. I should say the enormous impact of America on Taiwanese politics. Uh, I mean, Tsai Ing-wen was uh, in 2012, when she first stood as president and wasn't successful, quite firmly, you know, more independence leaning. Then she went to Washington and basically was told this is not, you know, going to do you any favors. And that was a problem. She's become much more, I suppose, nuanced now. Future presidents have been talked about. Her current vice president has been talked as a more of a of independence, but America always wades in and basically has a big influence until now on Taiwanese politics.
1: Yeah, and I find Taiwan's fudge on independence so interesting. And she says basically that Taiwan is already independent, and therefore there is no need for a formal declaration of independence, which you know China seems to be okay with. And just moving on, as well as those two main parties, the KMT and the DPP, there are also smaller parties because the legislature is voted in by proportional representation, which obviously lends its way to more smaller parties, but they tend to be split into a pan-blue coalition, so those who are led by the KMT informally, or or at least on their side, and then the pan-greens as well, those who are more hawkish on China, more independence-minded. Is China then, Brian? Is is China the main dividing political issue of the political camps in Taiwanese politics?
2: Yeah, I would say so, because the traditional political cleavage between the pan-green and the pan-blue camps is regarding the China issue. And sometimes there's discussion of the quote-unquote China factor in terms of how it affects Taiwan politically, culturally, and economically. And so I think the Taiwanese voter electorate often does vote based on which party they think can maintain peace in the Taiwan Straits. And so this is the determinant of why Tsai Ing-wen was able to take power with the uh, approval that she had because of the fat, fear that the KMT was more pro-China-leaning, that would lead to Taiwan becoming similar to Hong Kong, etc., that you have these mm-hmm. attempts to push through trade deals that would lead to deteriorations of political freedoms, and etc. And so I think this is, this is one of the major reasons as to why Tsai was able to take power and maintain power. And it looks like the KMT is in a very weak position now in terms of how it's done electorally in the past. And so we are coming up on elections, and that will be, again, seen if that is the case. However, it seems that these are the current voting trends in terms of Taiwan.
1: Well, that's fascinating because this 2020 presidential election that you've both mentioned came after a disastrous 2018 set of local elections for the DPP, where they lost seven of their 13 previously held regions. But of course, what happened between 2018 and 2020 was the Hong Kong extradition law, the Hong Kong protests. So, I mean, Brian, what was it like to watch that period of time unfold from Taipei?
2: So it was quite interesting that there was then fears of a research in KMT when the KMT looked like it had been on the retreat for the previous years. Uh, and so it was thought that the KMT would potentially do well in 2020 elections, uh, insofar as political trends in Taiwan are often affected by elsewhere. There was much discussion of their candidate at the time, Han as a kind of right wing populist candidate that similar to a Trump or whoever, uh, Duterte or whoever, would be able to win office and take it back for the KMT. And at the point in time in 2018, when he was running, it seemed like he was actually able to make inroads on younger voters, which was very unusual for a KMT politician. But then by the time 2020 rolled around, he had leaned much more into this traditional pan-blue ROC nationalism and, and kind of alienated that voter base. And he didn't do too well in terms of the Hong Kong issue. Now, for example, the KMT was trying to distinguish the 1992 consensus that it advocates from one country, two systems in Hong Kong. And that didn't really work out too well when just months prior, Hangor had a meeting with Kerry Lam, the Hong Kong chief executive, and signing deals as part of his uh, mayorship uh, as the Kaohsiung mayor. And so I I think that really cognitive dissonance, that was not something they were able to resolve. So it did not work out well for the KMT.
1: Mm. And Kerry, is that an ongoing problem for the KMT, which ultimately, I mean, at one point in its history, it wanted to reunify with China. I don't know what its current position is now, but as China becomes more belligerent towards Taiwan, you know, with Hong Kong, the situation there as it is, and then also with the pandemic as well, presumably Taiwanese people are becoming more anti-China, more hawkish on China, so putting the KMT in an increasingly difficult position.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, the mainland has always been fairly rough on Taiwan. In the 1950s and 60s, there were, you know, many, many clashes, probably more serious than today in, in some ways because they were happening rather than the kind of psychological wars you get today. Uh, surveys have shown that there's been a big sort of shift from people saying that um, they're they're Chinese. Taiwanese to, you know, kind of saying that they're Taiwanese who, you know, have Chinese cultural sort of a uh, uh, kind of and an heritage. And that's, I think, over 90% of the population now would say that. And that's, you know, in 10 years, I think that's already shifted. I don't think, you know, kind of the issue is that the, you know, the Republic of China moved to Taiwan in 1947, 1949, basically. So from 1949, it's been the Republic of China on Taiwan. And the KMT was the dominant party for the first 50, 60 years, with its very curious policies of claiming not just the area of the mainland, but also Mongolia. And so, you know, it's kind of weird that there's these historic issues that you can't really touch because, you know, they will then impact on mainland Chinese relations, which are still important. And I mean, the KMT historically has been so historically entwined in that that I think it's trying to remake itself for a generation, the vast majority of whom don't remember. I mean, how many people in Taiwan would remember the Japanese occupation and then, you know, the brief Mm -hmm. period of being the Republic of China just, you know, as the Republic of China? Very, very few. So it's a very remote memory. That's a big, big issue.
1: Well, what about for the future then? Where does the future lie for the Pan Blues? Because Taiwan has had her second term, uh, she's going through her second term. But, you know, are the Blues still a sizable force in politics? Do they have future platforms that they should be pivoting towards instead?
0: Well, as we've learned in Western politics, right wing parties can never be written off because they always make a comeback and they'll always find some tasty new narrative to stir things up. And so I don't think the KMT can be written off. It's an extremely wealthy party. It's an extremely connected party. I think it's in a bad shape at the moment. Uh, you know, and it's some um, previous some, um, was it Hanguo Yu, the previous candidate was obviously not successful. But I mean, you know, you never write these things off. I mean, they still got, what is it, 45% of the vote? I mean, that's significant into 2020. So they'll probably find something, you know, mm. like the Republicans have in America, like the Conservatives have in Britain. They'll find some new narrative. But the old relationship of benign kind of acceptance of China as you know, something that just can be put on the back burner. I don't think that that's viable anymore. It's a more urgent issue.
1: Well, Brian, especially because there seems to be a generational divide. You know, you've mentioned the Sunflower Movement, which is comprised of young people. Kerry's mentioned these young people ever more increasingly identifying as Taiwanese rather than Chinese. So what what do you think is the way for the KMT or the Pan Blues to win back younger voters?
2: Yeah, it's the challenge. I think for the KMT, it would be to remake its image as not being so pro-China. And the KMT has struggled with that, as I mentioned, with Hong Kong, but in in elections as well. One has seen, particularly in the past few years, the rise of the deep blues within the party, uh, who are much more ideologically fixated on China. And so because of the fact that after the 2014 Sun Farm Movement, the KMT need to really rethink itself, it clearly lost the support of a generation of Taiwanese young people. Uh, A few years ago, there was a point in which it had less than 10,000 members under 40. Uh, and so to rethink its identity, then it requ- requires defining itself again in terms of whether it does actually identify with China or hopes for the unification with China. But that alienates the older members of the party who are now increasingly resistant to that. And so that is the challenge. Uh, but I think that it is true that the KMT continues to win votes because there are older people that will stuff for them. They are, have deeply entrenched networks in many parts of Taiwan from decades of political control. And it's also just the case that Even if young people overwhelmingly identify as Taiwanese and not Chinese, and the KMT has very little youth support, young people are still outnumbered by older people in a society that is rapidly aging
1: fair enough um, and Kerry, what about the greens then would they I mean could they make a mistake because Carrie lam came close to it in 2018 doesn't it? she and I as i understand it but you correct me if i'm wrong that was based on her lackluster domestic record when it came to social issues and economic issues so domestic agenda could be something that flounders that party alternatively if she triggers china too much especially in the aftermath of ukraine you know there are western commentators saying that this shows that america needs to supply more arms to taiwan or that america needs to um, militarised Japan. You know, if something like that triggers some kind of aggressive action from China, could Taiwan actually be punished by people who think she's moving too far to um, antagonise China?
0: Well, she can't stand again. So she's got two more years. And so, I mean, she can be punished in local elections. And yeah, for sure. But it's really for her successor and the, the constitution. I think she's she's reached her limit. Domestically, yeah. I mean, it's always been a problem because uh, finding growth, seventy percent of Taiwan's you know trade is with China. It's a massive dependence. It's the issue that we all wrestle with. Their biggest economic partner is also their biggest security threat. So we all kind of have this. I mean Australia and America to some extent have this issue, and you know the growth rate in Taiwan after the uh, as they come out of the pandemic hasn't been bad, but growth was very, very poor after the two thousand and eight. Uh, you know, kind of economic crisis. That's the issue that people vote on. It's true everywhere. You know, if the economy is no good, if jobs are a problem, if prosperity is no good, then there's going to be, you know, kind of a a consequence at the ballot box. The problem at the moment is that KMT don't have a visible, compelling leader, but people can emerge from nowhere. So, you know, I, I wouldn't ever write them off, you know, kind of think that you could be complacent mainland affairs are important in Taiwanese politics, but they're not all important. I mean, there's a bunch of other issues that people also have to address, and that's uh, what they'll vote on, many of them.
1: Mm -hmm. And Brian, I want to talk about Hong Kong um, some more, which is just the Hong Kong extradition law. It came about, the catalyst for it at least, was the murder of a pregnant Hong Kong woman in Taipei by her boyfriend. Uh, He then escaped back to Hong Kong, but Taiwanese authorities wanted to bring him to justice. But because Taiwan and Hong Kong don't have an extradition agreement with each other that supposedly triggered the extradition law, which obviously also included mainland China and all of the domestic Hong Kong strife that, that triggered. But in Taiwan, knowing the context that the Taiwanese people know and following the murder from that perspective, it's not a story that's often reported in the Western media as the trigger for those protests that year. Was there a different opinion on that context in, in Taiwan? Do people think actually this law kind of did make sense in some ways?
2: Uh, There are some members of the KMT that would probably think that, but it came up very rarely. I actually think many in Taiwan actually did not even realize that the murder case that triggered the uh, extradition agreement or proposal actually took place in in Taiwan. And so this has been quite interesting. It has come up as an issue in which uh, the Hong Kong government said, well, he wants to hand himself into Taiwan now. And so the Thai ministry did send law enforcement officials to Hong Kong warning that, you know, if you don't actually take him into custody there, this could be used to set up a legal precedent in which people willingly, quote unquote, uh, say they want to turn themselves in and it's used as a way to justify extraditions and etc. But in the, the end, the result was that he was not taken into custody. Um, this will come up a few times with regards to the kidnapping of uh, Taiwanese nationals by the Chinese government. Uh, There are a few that are thought to be held for political purposes, the most famous of which is Li Mingzhe, a NGO worker and a former DP party worker. And it it was just the uh, fifth anniversary of his detention or disappearance into China two days ago. And so that came up, Uh, but that's not always thought of in the same framework, I think.
1: And Kerry, Let's talk about America's influence a bit more because you've already mentioned it and you said that Taiwan had been getting some instructions or at least some guidance from the American side. Is that usual for Taiwanese governments and leaders to take that kind of inspiration or guidance from America? How, How big of a presence does America loom in Taiwanese politics?
0: Yeah, I mean, you could argue that the Republic of China on Taiwan is largely, well, to some extent, because of American patronage. I mean, until 1971... When, you know, Taiwan had the seat at the United Nations, uh, you know, it was the one that America recognised. And then America switched diplomatic recognition to the People's Republic in 1979, but then had a a Taiwan Relations Act that same year, which, you know, committed quite heavily to, uh, you know, kind of being involved in Taiwan's security. And that's why you still get arms sales today. And American presidents from Carter onwards, uh, you know, have been supportive of Taiwan being able to defend itself. The question of whether there would be American troops fighting in Taiwan is the same as the question of whether, you know, there would be a no-fly zone over Ukraine. It would be the Third World War, basically, because you would be having America pit itself against China and its alliance system. So it wouldn't probably happen. But certainly Taiwan has a formidable military because of American sales, And it's on an island, which means it's even tougher to attack. So you would be really looking at a pretty bloody war. And I kind of wondered over the last few weeks, you know, one of the most embarrassing and horrible things about the Russia-Ukraine issue is people of the same heritage butchering each other. Well, I mean, mostly people of Russian heritage butchering people in Ukraine. I mean, well, (laughs) this is deeply, deeply dismal. And I think that for Chinese their fundamental claim in Beijing is that this is one family and all the rest of it I think that's also completely unpalatable that they would countenance you know a war situation in which you would have very high fatalities for people who they say are the same heritage even though of course many in Taiwan would say that wasn't the case so I think that's another reason why the parallels between these two are really not that obvious.
1: Yeah, I mean, Kerry, I think you're absolutely right then. I would, or at least I hope you're right in that the Chinese people that I know, the PRC Chinese people that I know who believe that Taiwan is a part of China, they would be absolutely horrified to see something like Mariupol happening in Taipei right now. The similarity of language, the shared of history and culture means that, the you know, if you believe that Taiwan is a part of China, you do believe that Taiwanese people are like you, a part of your nationhood. Obviously, there's going to be if there is any ever a Chinese invasion, there will be censorship of videos or a control of narrative or distorting of narrative to show, make it seem like people perhaps deserved it. But I would question the limits of that when the pictures are really in front of you and when there is so much shared when the language is shared as well, so it's there's such an ease of communication. So I think the government would have a very difficult public opinion, public opinion task on its hands in trying to justify a war if it's going to be bloody. But are you saying that the Beijing government itself would also have qualms about that kind of butchery?
0: Yeah, I mean, this is a country that hasn't fought a proper combat war since 1979. And the Vietnamese attack by the People's Republic in 79 was what some people thought that Putin was going to do in Ukraine, which was to go in, rough them up and then clear off. I mean, you know, and never really. make it to
1: Hanoi, never make it to the capital. Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, you know, uh, but I mean, really, the last time that China has had real international combat experience was the Korean War. I mean, that's that's the last time, which was 70 odd years ago. So I can't really see. I mean, China is a curious power because I think it does more harm to itself in some ways than it does to others. I mean, the greatest human rights violations that China's committed have been to people in Xinjiang, Tibet, you know, not to people in the Middle East. So I think that probably frames a lot of what's discussed about Ukraine, that I think Chinese public, they may speak harshly on social media. I mean, every public sort of speaks like that, but they've never actually had body bags coming back from, you know, severe battles and been hardened by that and so I, no one knows what how that will impact especially if it's people you say are your own heritage i mean you know it, 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 i don't know how that plays out and we don't know how public opinion in the people's republic plays out anyway we listen to these spectral voices on social media which mean everything and nothing like they do everywhere yeah. where the reality is i have no idea and no one, i don't think anyone does
1: Yeah, well, even less, right, with the censorship that goes on, which, you know, a lot of comments are suspiciously similar to each other. Brian, is the view in Taiwan that similar to what, what Kerry has just said, which is that actually the costs of any invasion on Taiwan have actually risen? And so it's actually less likely than it was, let's say, last October, where the situation looked fraught.
2: Yeah, so I think this is interesting because this is a point in which experts and their viewpoints differ from the common public at large, which is not informed on military matters. And so experts are quick to point to the differences in the situations, the challenges of a beachhead invasion, Taiwan's centrality to the world economy in terms of semiconductor manufacturing, just that China's not fought a war in all this time and has provoked other countries in the region, such as Japan. But then the common people will see this and just think that, well, maybe it is about the same. And so you have this mixed messaging sometimes from the government in which they'll say that Taiwan is not the same as Ukraine as Premier Su Chang said, for example, in question the legislature. But then you'll have Tsai saying herself, well, we stand with Ukraine as a fellow democracy, for example. And so I think the thing that is concerning though, to me about the parallels is that there's the belief from I think some in China that fighting a war over Taiwan would be easy. And there's not a sense of the immense death toll that would take place, not just of Taiwanese, but of Chinese themselves. And so the belief and overconfidence that uh, even this belief that the ROC military would not fight against the Chinese military because Chinese don't kill Chinese and they will just make way, uh, not realizing how much death would just come from trying to invade, uh, conduct a, a complicated and a costly naval invasion, uh, or even the economic impact would occur from the fallout on China and on Taiwan, which would have severe economic shockwaves globally. I think this is not discussed, and that kind of overconfidence is, is what I'm a little cautious of.
1: Mm. And finally, I just want to ask about uh, Taiwan's views on Japan as well, because Japan has that colonial history uh, with Taiwan. But as you mentioned, that was a very long time ago. <laughs> Again, there are Western commentators who say because of the Ukrainian invasion, uh, America should be seeking to militarize Japan more. And obviously, there are Japanese politicians like Shinzo Abe who have said that Japan could host American nuclear bombs. Would How would Taiwan feel about that? And Brian, do you, f- do you feel free to come in after this as well? How would Taiwan feel about that? Because I can imagine there are certain places in Asia that are there to counter China, like South Korea, who would not like a more militarised Japan, nevertheless.
0: Well, yeah, I think Taiwan's experience of Japanese colonisation was not a happy one, but it wasn't the same searing experience as, you know, the mainland during the war, because in some senses there wasn't the level of sort of military violence on taiwan i mean it wasn't a sort of particular theater of battle in the way that the mainland was i don't know i mean japan has a huge military because it's got the self-defense force but it's always kind of been left out because that's for self-defense so i don't know what else the military does really i mean so so it's sort of you know like you can you can kind of it's like the special military what is it special operations of putin you know we have our own ways of trying to conceal things would taiwan be worried about japanese militarization I think that they probably wouldn't want it excessively, but I think that they want counterbalances to China. They want they don't want China to totally dominate the whole region. And I think Japan is an important counterweight, a very significant counterweight. I mean, the Japanese, they don't have a great deal of trust towards China, and China doesn't have a great deal of trust towards them. So it's probably a good counterweight. But I don't think heavy militarization is a super great thing for the region. That's why American forces are still based in Korea and Okinawa and places like that on the argument that they must maintain stability and security so there isn't militarization that gets out of hand. Brian?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And so I think what is interesting, though, is that views of Japan differ sharply between the Pan Green and the Pan Blue camp. Uh, for the KMT, they remember a lot of the Sino-Japanese War and the past uh, crimes noted by the Japanese during that period. But for the Pan Greens, who sometimes were descended from those that were in Taiwan during the Japanese colonial period, experienced the Japanese colonial period as a time in which of higher living standards and improved education, uh, and in which Taiwan's being brought up as a colony rather than uh, these kind of political killings and mass violence and etc. they have a much more romanticized view of the Japanese colonial period. And that contributes to uh, more positive views of Japan today. Something like Shinjo Ape is a very right wing a uh, person that is very nostalgic for the Japanese empire. But then for people in Taiwan, I think that people would view Japan as an ally. Uh, for example, then Taiwan donated the most to Japan after the Fukushima disaster. And so tai has sought stronger relations with uh, Shinzo Abe and sometimes the Japanese right wing, while the KMT has been quite unhappy with that. But I think that this is a way in which the two camps have very sharply different views of this period.
1: Brian Chill and Kerry Brown, thank you very much for joining Chinese Whispers. And thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, do give us a rating or a review. And remember, you can subscribe to never miss an episode. And if you want to hear more about Taiwan, I've got a link in the description of this podcast to a previous episode I did um, last year with Professor Rana Mitter and the analyst Jessica Jun about Taiwan's history why exactly the KMT has that link to the People's Republic of China, how exactly the shared culture and language has come about. So do tune in to that as well. Thanks for listening.